podcast that looks at design and its impact on your everyday life. I am urbanist Rachel Fisher and I'm interior designer Abigail Hall and this month, Rachel, mm. I went to the ballet. You did not. Of course I did. It's me. It's Christmas. It's Christmas and what do I go and see but the Nutcracker. Because at, it's Christmas. Because it's Christmas at the um, Royal Opera House. Uh, don't you know? And can you believe I've never been there before? No. I know. Really? I've been to see The Nutcracker three times now in various different countries in various different venues and my husband very kindly booked me to go to the Royal Opera House and even he said, <laughs> Abby, have you been there? And I went, of course I have. And as we were walking up to it, I went, I know this building. And as we walked in, I went, no, no, I've not been here. Really? It's phenomenal because it's a Regency theatre Royal mm. Theatre, obviously, and it's had the most phenomenal extension where they've had to extend sideways. Yeah. So the challenge of having all of this municipal space for the bars and the access, mm. um, but ultimately where you're having to wrap around what was the existing building. And it got me thinking a lot about um, how period buildings done very, very well, where you have a, an extension that's in juxtaposition to it, so lots of glass and contemporary finishes. Well, think of the famous carbuncle um, exactly. on the corner of the, uh, of the National Gallery. There we go. Exactly. But it also got me thinking about a project that I've been working on, sadly stopped working on it about a year ago, but it's still going on now, which is the um, absolute recreation of a Victorian square for um, a, a big uh, TV production company. And the the nature of the intricate details that you have to go to to get either proper restoration mm. or proper recreation correct. And as always, you know me, I'm always thinking about the devil in the detail. So whether it be the Royal Opera House where you've got clearly brand new curtains but that are done with the the beading and the detailing and the brocade and the heavy, heavy, intricate detail that would have been mm. 200 years ago, or whether you are having to hand paint on the patina to recreate an effect. It just, I got lost. I got lost in some design detail, and then I got lost in an amazing production. That's really interesting. So I, I know the Royal Opera House really well. My sister-in-law is a stage manager <gasps> at the Royal Opera House. Um, and I think was probably calling the show that you saw. I don't doubt it. And what's hilarious was we were talking about the various staff <laughs> who, who at the Royal Opera House, yeah, no, no, from the person who's on the cloakroom to the person at the bar, uh, of absolutely phenomenal. And so I, um, so I used to work across the street from the Royal Opera House. So I used to work at the Design Council on Bow Street. Mm. And so you're in this horrific building which is basically an electricity substation wrapped in a kind of metal grating, which kind of makes it look not like a substation, but it is. And you're looking at this amazing kind of fan lighting. The, the, and that's this hugely yes. beautiful kind of um, greenhouse. Orangery. Yeah, like a greenhouse. Yeah, which is where the restaurant bar is. Exactly. And so, and so what I found is that quite frequently I would just cut through 
the Royal Opera House because it is very to get useful straight country. into Covent yes. Garden, and um, it was closed for a while to the public um, because of the restoration mm. works that they were doing. But I, I, I love that space, and one of the, one of the huge privileges of having uh, a family member who works there is I've been able to watch um, operas, not a ballet, but I've been able to watch operas from backstage. I can't even imagine. And so you're sitting backstage in the wings, you're having a chat with these people um, about, you know, oh, when I was doing this thing in New York and blah, blah, blah. You're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, and then they go out and they give this amazing performance. They come back and like, so yeah, so as I was saying, (laughs) mid-sentence, we saw, we saw, um, life-changing moment. We saw Placido Domingo. (gasps) No. Yeah, uh, because he sings baritone now. Um, that he's gotten older yes. and he doesn't sing tenor as much. It was just, it was, it was amazing. I got to meet him backstage. And, and of course, all of these really, really important people are waiting to meet him. <laughs> and you're just chatting. <laughs> like, Hi. Oh, Plasto. Plasto. Um, and, and the thing is, like, as a, as a child growing up watching Sesame Street, um, they had this character called Placido Flamingo. Oh my God, no. Yeah. Seriously. And so basically, I, I, you were biting your tongue the entire time saying, mm, don't say flamingo. Don't say flamingo. Don't don't say flamingo. Don't say. Now, I'm interested to know, from um, stage side, from yep. In the Wings, can you actually view the internal plaster work of the, the original theatre, which has been restored as part of yeah, the, yeah. the overall restoration? No, so the backstage is a very modern backstage. Yeah. You so, can, do you have a line of sight out into the auditorium, out into this actual space? Not really. You're kind of if you're viewing, you're viewing them. They can see you exactly. You can see them. They can see you. So you're so you're kind of viewing kind of side on. Uh, But it's but it's incredible to watch all of these people work, and it's incredible to watch these huge pieces of machinery kind of move around. And it is stage. uh, And the most phenomenal thing, uh, they have a um, a very sheer mesh curtain which drops very close to the Mm -hmm. front of the stage near the pit. And they used it incredibly well. As anyone who goes to the theatre knows, they often use these mesh curtains to uh, project uh, an image onto, of which people either exist in front or behind yeah. of so to move sets around. But in this instance, they were pumping out, at one point during the Sugar Plum Fairies, they were pumping huge, huge quantities of uh, dry ice. Yeah. But this screen was keeping it like a barrier, but a very small amount was flowing under, and it was flowing like water. Oh, wow. Which was hypnotic to watch. I did feel awfully sorry for the musical pit because it was just pouring like water <laughs> into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that was neither pleasant nor particularly warm. No. Yeah. No. So that's what I was doing, thinking about design, thinking about architecture, but mainly just kind of soaking in and, the, uh, yeah, soaking the dry the ice and the, yeah. and the culture. <laughs> what have you been doing this month? Wow, uh, nothing quite so glamorous. Well. So I listened to a podcast this month that really, really made me think. So there's a new magazine out, uh, a magazine looking at kind of placemaking called yes. The Developer, yes. uh, edited by Christine Murray. And they have a series of podcasts out. And the most recent one is called uh, This Is Your Brain on the City. Oh, okay. So it's talking to Araceli Camargo, who I just have been following on Twitter for ages, and she's, she's such a hero. Um, she worked with Centric Labs, and yes. they're really interested in the neuroscience of cities, which is something I've been very interested You're in. You are fascinated as well. by I, this. I really yeah. am. And, and so she was talking a lot about the fact that when you're in a city, you're often in a kind of fight or flight mode. There are a lot of things that, you know, if you're crossing the street and you're trying to make a decision as to whether or not to cross, you hear a car, uh, you hear a siren, your body physiologically reacts in ways that aren't necessarily the same as how 
you are mentally reacting. And you're probably being pushed and shoved a little bit so, as well because of the density of people. Exactly. And so the question is, you know, how do you find, you know, how do you come back to a center? How do you come back to, to a place of rest? And, and how do you physiologically adjust to living in a, in a stressful environment like the city? And so uh, what was particularly traumatizing is I was listening to this on my commute in and just as I get into the tube station, she starts talking about all of the toxins oh, that no. are in the air yeah. on the tube. Which we all thinking, know, of course. Oh my God, I'm just, I'm killing myself with my yeah. commute in multiple ways. But I really recommend this podcast. Um, it made me think about the city and think about how we use spaces and 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 what's kind of important in terms of what we build into the city really really differently based on the neuroscience behind it that said i think there are some really interesting questions about do we actually need the data to justify the things that we already know are true well that's that's a substantiation argument isn't yeah. it there's so many naysayers that say well you have to justify it substantiate it and give it to me why, in the numbers. Exactly. Give, give me the numbers and then we will be able to make those decisions. And that's actually, why people are obligated to collect that kind of data. And I always come back to uh, the, you know, the, the, the Dead Poet Society. Well, I like Byron, I give him a 42, but you can't dance to it. That is not poetry, <laughs> right? Cities are, to a certain extent, they are poetry as yes. well. This is, you know, how do you talk about the magic of being in a city in a way that is quantifiable? And how do you also, when you dissect it and quantify it, not make it seem just horrendous? Because it's beautiful. We so, love live. We, you and I, yeah, love. We are. Living we in a are city. A city people. And yes. and the thing is, like, I was listening to this podcast, and I kept thinking, God, this sounds terrible. Why do any That's of us exactly live in cities? I mean. And then I was thinking, and yet everyone making this podcast, and everyone listening to this podcast, most people, I'm sure, yeah. many. Well, no, not our podcast, yeah. but like listening to the "This Is Your Brain on the City" yeah, podcast. True. These are people involved in city making, mm. right? So what are the things that we are going to take from this into the world that we are into the world that we are actually you know culpable for creating i'm fascinated to listen to that thank you for really really recommend it yeah. yeah excellent now good design bad design yes this month have you been thinking about that i well always 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 so i was in cambridge um, I was in Cambridge for work, and I was at the government offices, uh, which are about a 12, 12 minute walk uh, away from Cambridge Station. Yes. Um, and there used to just be a kind of wasteland between the office and the Cambridge uh, Station. Now, I can't picture that. I always think of Cambridge as this beautiful, finished city. Mm, no. No? Oh, no. Really? Is, oh, there, is no. the train station outside? Have you been? I no. Okay, I've, so so you, I've driven to Cambridge, right. never on the train. Okay, so first of all, use the park and ride. That's what it's there yes. for. Um, if you take the train to Cambridge, uh, you walk, you come straight out of the Cambridge station. You walk down the main road about I'm twenty minutes yes. before you get into the city centre okay. because the city centre is so densely populated. The city centre is so kind of tiny and historic. They don't really have the you know the main train station doesn't dump you into the center. If you were to come into the train station and turn left, and then walk down kind of back behind yourself, and then keep walking a little bit, and then cross some roads, you will eventually come to this strange area where they keep the government officials. In any case, they keep them holding pen just outside the city. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they've been building up this area uh, quite reasonably because it's 
you know, within the city centre, huge, huge, mm. you know, pressures on housing, huge pressures on uh, housing space, commercial space, retail space within, within Cambridge. Um, and so I was walking through a new housing development right by this train station. And there was this publicy, privatey green space, yes. which had been crisscrossed with paths to walk upon. Intentional public realm, intentional public realm in a plan view, yep. crisscrossy paths. Crisscrossy paths. And these crisscrossy paths are basically second guessing desire lines. Yes. So desire lines are my favorite thing. I'm sure I've talked about them before, but my favorite thing in urban design is this idea that a desire line is where you choose to walk as opposed to where we tell you to walk. Where your designer has set the path, but you know getting from A to B, if I cross that bit of grass... I will go straight across yeah. it. Right. So there are countless examples where you will come across a green space where there's just a muddy track yes. that will take you from A to B really, really quickly. And what was fascinating about this, and I wish I'd taken a photo, but what was fascinating about this was they clearly thought through the desire line principle and not quite got it right. Because desire lines are less uh, kind of symmetrical and they are less balanced than yes. actually how people want to move. And so you had these tiny little cut crosses. So you had these amazing um, kind of little boulevards, if you will, crisscrossing to let you go across this space. And then you had these tiny little dirt bits just slightly off the main path because that's where you actually wanted to go. And I love how fascinating that is because that is the majority of people taking that route. Yep. Hence the yep. grass being worn away. Yeah. And I love how planners and designers and landscape architects really want to enforce their will. I noticed it recently. I came out of um, Euston Square and I was going to a street called Drummond Street, yep. which is not far from Love the Drummond Street. you know very well. Um, and on the, it, it's a very, very wide pavement at that point because the, the, mm. the buildings are really quite far set back. And there's two very beautiful trees that have been planted in a very, very large planting area, which requires, if you're doing a straight line of sight from the tube to where the crossing is, requires you to do a U-curve around this planting area. They've now used a, a wet pour system, which allows you to have water drain through a substance, allowing the trees to grow. Right. But because so many people just walked across the tree roots. Yeah. Because why the living hell, if you're going from your tube station to your crossing, you're going to do anything but a direct route? And I, as I did it, I thought about design lines and I thought about you. Oh. Because who the hell thought they would deviate for some trees? I, I think it's, it's interesting how you try to get it right. On planet, I'm sure it On looks On planet, beautiful. it looks right and you try to get it right. And but trees ultimately, good. Trees good. Tick. Yeah. But ultimately, you can't you can't really second guess what the public are going to want to do. And that's why it's so important, I think, to, to really use participant observation, to think about watching people, how they use a space, how they want to use a space, and, and making the space facilitate that. Yeah. I think we could talk about this many, many, on, on many other occasions. So that's kind of my good design, bad design. So it was sort of like, not quite good design, because trying to put in this, trying to put you, in the design lines. Did you stay on the path, or did you... Oh, it got awkward, because I got slightly trapped behind some slow walkers, which I'm, I'm convinced worst. is because I just wasn't in London. Um, so I got trapped behind some slow walkers, so I had to cut around them. So I didn't quite stick to the design lines, but I'm happy to say they did. Oh, good. Hmm. Maybe the slow walkers 
are efficient because they... No. 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 There's no justification no, for slow walking. Right. I tailed off there because no I couldn't really No justification for slow walking. Abby, tell me about your good design, bad design this month. Well, as we're recording this, we're just before Christmas. Um, this is going to be published uh, just after Christmas. And the moment Christmas comes and goes, mm. we all immediately go into January mode. I know it's still technically December. The I will eat nothing, I will drink nothing, I will be miserable for the next month. And the reason I am fat is because <laughs> I don't Not because have... of what I did for the last no, 11 no, no, months, no, no, but no, just no. this month. It's because I don't have a spiralizer. I don't have a Nutribullet. <gasps> oh. I don't have a ab-crunching device of which various are available. And we all know the kind of mm. infomercials, the information, all the magazine publications. Thank you, Thighmaster. Oh, I actually kind of have a space in my heart for Thighmaster. I wish I was using <laughs> one right now. Um, do those squeezes. Do them. But really, good sign, bad design is saying there's very, very few quick fixes. We know this. There's very yeah. few quick fixes. The best product to purchase for your home is the one where you have genuinely come across a problem. So if you are using a hand grater to grate your courgette, mm. because that's what you like, you like your courgette spaghetti. Is that what they call it? Sure. Sure, that's a thing. If suddenly, you've, you're spending 20 minutes doing it each time, if you see a device that will make your 20 minutes turn to five minutes, what a good investment. Yeah. It's an activity you're already doing and this is a design that solves a problem. Mm -hmm. It reduces time and you will use that item. It won't end up in the bottom of a drawer, at the back of a cupboard, collecting dust on your work surface. Yeah. The bad choices for you from a design perspective are things that you think will modify your behaviour. Yeah. And in that, I include, I am talking about homeware items and I'm talking about um, exercise items that you magically think you're going to use just because you own it if i get this i will become the kind of person that gets up 30 minutes earlier exactly no you're not i i used to have a hairdresser that said to me abby scissors not a magic wand <laughs> and there's various things i um my, <laughs> my husband had a bit of a knee issue and i decided as a good wife i would get him a wobble board you know because i don't even know what a wobble board is it's, it's a it's a round board with a small base which means you can put your foot on it or put your feet on it. And it wobbles and you stabilise yourself. Very good for core strength. Um, the reality yeah. was, he wasn't doing the kind of exercises at home that required a wobble board. And therefore, me buying a piece of kit wasn't going to change his behaviour. Then, after he pointed this out to me, I decided, oh no, but I could use it. As if, again, magically, it would be the thing that would make me get up half an hour earlier. The design itself of the item... Not bad. There's nothing wrong with the wobble board. It's a fine piece of kit. Well done, designers. However, know yourself. Know how design works with you. Yeah. It isn't something that made me change. And it ended up being something I, I shoved under my desk. And it used to sit kind of on the base of my chair. So whenever I pulled the chair out to his desk, this wobble board would kind of dislodge itself. And remind and be a reminder you. of the fact that I shouldn't be sitting on my chair. I should be standing on my wobble board while trying to do emails for the core strength. And actually, the one thing you don't need in our houses is things to remind us of all the things we should be doing. So good design, something that you are already doing that makes your life better. Bad design, something you think that will change your behaviour. Good definition of good design, bad design. Yeah. 
And actually, that's the same as, as, as with desire lines. You don't desire to use the wobble board, do you? No. No. I do not. Not an object of desire. Not for, not for all the design there is in the world. It's not going to make me <laughs> use it. So, our big topic yes. this month. <laughs> it's got cold, hasn't it? It has gotten very cold and very wet. Oh, so grim. Because hi- London. Do you want to hibernate? Yes, I do. So do I. <laughs> Should we talk about how to do that? Hibernation. We are basically two big bears wanting to crawl under a duvet for the rest of the winter. I actually think I could hibernate. I've thought about this for a while. My <laughs> ability to sleep for 12 hours uninterrupted. Speaking to someone who has young children, I realise this is just gouging Criminal. you in the eye with so unfair. <laughs> Five o'clock this morning, my daughter comes and says, Mummy... Can I, can I come in with you? No, you kick and you annoy me. <laughs> but you love her, right? I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, for the official record. Yes. Um, so when we started researching about hibernation, um, I realised that actually the room I like to design the least hmm. is a bedroom. Interesting. Tell me more. I think it's because it is the ultimate in personal design. Hmm. There's so many elements of what makes... We talk about hibernation. Hibernation is basically a space that where you are so comfortable and uninterrupted and unencumbered by everything else that you can truly rest and relax. We, I talk about the Sanctum yeah. Sanctorum, but that's like the epitome yeah. of it. Um, now, for me, I have my go-tos personally, and I'm very interested to know your views on this. I hate electronics in a bedroom. The evil red eye of the device oh, yeah. that looks at you... I don't want to lie in bed and watch TV. I have that. No, bed isn't for TV I don't really for me. That. Um, I don't. I don't even really want a, a, an alarm clock, a digital clock. I listen to my radio on my phone. Do you keep your phone in your room when you go to bed? I do, but I use my phone as my alarm clock. Yeah. So, so do I. And one of the things that I object to about this is that my husband recently purchased some new uh, charging wires for our phones. Oh yes, and. For reasons best known to the design designers of these wires, they have these little blue lights. To show they're working? Yeah. That's so annoying. And I am... So forget extre- the evil red lights, yeah. the evil blue lights. So I'm lights. extremely light sensitive. And they are really bright. Well, in a room that is completely dark. Exactly. Because light. I've got blackout, so I don't, I don't respond well to light. I need it to be very black when I sleep. We have blackout blinds in our room. And then these tiny little blue prim pinpricks of light drive me absolutely up a wall well i still have some um snagging stickers from the flat i think i might gift you some put them over the evil blue light so i think what's interesting about bedroom design is that growing up that's the room that you design yes so i remember being six and thinking about the color scheme from my bedroom I had a really strong view at the age of about six that I wanted my room to be a rainbow room, but I didn't want anything as blasé as to have like a freaking rainbow painted in my room. (laughs) What kind of person would do that? I thought to myself. I love six-year-old you. But six-year-old me wanted a runner across the top of my chest of drawers that was in red. Yes. And then I wanted something in blue and something, right? And so, so, so through the the spectrum in different ways. but, But in different ways. This moved on to when I was nine and I wanted a peach and blue room not pink and blue no very specific this was the 80s right this was this peach, was the peach late was a, late peach 80s was a strong peach choice. was a strong choice yeah 
And was the blue like a soft, like a light blue? Okay, so we had a dusty blue, but also brought in with a kind of hard navy. Oh, yeah, yeah I know, I yeah. know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, rather than white, I preferred an ecru. Oh my God, I, I absolutely love you, Star. <laughs> If we have a time machine, aside from going back and obviously winning all the lotteries okay. and stopping World War Two and other world wars, um, um, I want to go back and just basically meet you. <laughs> Nine-year-old me. It's okay, yeah. my dad will be there in about six years. So, yeah. Um, so, so I, but I, and, then, and then when I was 14, I went through this whole, like, earth phase where I wanted everything to be natural and I, I had a lot of driftwood that I collected. Anyway, like, so, so, so what's interesting is I became an adult my bedroom was the room that I designed the least. I became more and more interested in the public spaces. But of course, your bedroom as a child mm. is not your sanctum sanctorum. It is the way that you express your personality. It's the room that you're given control of. Whereas now as an adult, I find that my the, the bedroom, which is why I struggle to design it for other mm. people, is I can express their personalities in the public spaces, in their because studies, their in their kitchens. Yes, whereas how they are personally, that's... That really is incredibly, incredibly intimate. And what I find I end up doing yeah. is impressing my own views, which is almost a hotel style, Mm-mm. very, very, very good quality everything. I'm going to be honest. Boutique hotel is good for everyone. The secret is a phenomenal mattress. I love my mattress. And we're going to, in the show notes, we will put some links of some mattresses that I truly recommend. Um, and there's a whole sprung mattress versus um, foam mattress, which actually f- fundamentally comes down to how hot you get in bed. If you get really overly hot, just simply don't use a foam mattress because it doesn't breathe. Yeah. Um, if not, you're absolutely fine using them. They are absolutely phenomenal. Um, white, exceptionally high count, the best you can, um, Egyptian cotton. Mm. The higher the cotton count, the more it wicks moisture from you. And you want a really high thread count as well. That's exactly it. I like feather because I'm not allergic to it, but there's lots of synthetic options So I'm increasingly concerned about my relationship with feather and all other natural fibres since I have developed in the last year a wool allergy. This is a game changer and that's... It happens to people, even as an adult. It's driving me absolutely mad. I have had to get rid of all of my wool. And I imagine even in your bedroom, so even a throw on the bed or a set of cushions, impossible. Unacceptable. Cannot have it anywhere near me. Do you have uh, natural feather pillows or are you synthetic? We do have feather pillows and we do have a feather duvet. Currently, I am all right. But I just, I don't, I and I don't know. I mean, they're different, completely different things. Yeah, they're completely different things. The one thing I would say about um, if you do have natural feather, uh, goose down, duck down, whatever it might be. It does need to be aired. Mm. Don't underestimate. The one thing I talk about it wicking from you, these wonderful, fabulous uh, cottons, is the moisture does go somewhere. We don't have many sunny days in the UK, but on the sunny day there is, dear God, please... Put your pillows out. Put your pillows out, put your duvet out. So this is the thing that I have learned from you. I did this all last summer. We we had this beautifully warm summer. And if you're you're finding, if you have natural feather pillows and they're starting to go yellow, they're they're oils in Mm. it... It might stain the outer case. That doesn't mean to say it's not clean. But put them outside. It will dry up. It will fluff up. It is amazingly magical. It's a game changer. It's magical, actually. So you just, you put these kind of flat, weird pillows out. And then the by the magical. end of the afternoon, there are these giant 
puffy pillows again. And even if you have a tumble dryer and you put in the tumble, it's not no, the same. Not it's the not same. doing the same thing no. at all. So, yeah, so I impress my views onto other people, which yeah. is this high Minimalism, high white, count, high quality. Very much so. And uh, a limited palette of colours, personally, mm. because I think any kind of visual detritus yeah. is impossible. Likewise, if you have your wardrobes, drawers, keep everything tidied away as much as possible. I'm, I'm a big believer. I, I've lived with open plan wardrobes many, many years, but never in a bedroom. I think it's just about calm. What is calm? And I think the older I get, the more I appreciate having less visual disturbance mm. and having sort of fewer things around me is really, really helpful. And what about cushions on a bed? So, okay, I'm a bit puritanical. I don't love a cushion. Do you find in the morning, you, you might not do this because you have little children, in the morning, if you wake up in bed, hibernation mode, so yep. you're wanting to stay in bed. Okay, it's trying warm, to it's imagine nice. a time that, yeah, yeah, okay, thinking back, thinking back. You perhaps have two pillows, you use two mm. pillows. But, but I only sleep with one, so one pillow on the bed, one pillow kind of on the floor, but the pillow on the bed is there mostly for decoration later. Like, oh, oh wow, I'm a two-pillow Or girl. like if I'm reading. Yeah, no, well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. So I am a two-pillow girl, but in the morning, if I want to read the paper in bed, for example, those throw cushions, which as a puritanical person yeah. you can't tolerate, I then use them to prop me up. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So I hear you, but I don't really read the paper in bed. Be- and I've no. never... No, so I've never really been one of those people. I'm one of those, get up, have a coffee, read it. I, I, I don't love soft furnishings. It puts me to bed. Like, so if I'm on a soft furnishing I will fall asleep it doesn't matter what time it is so my hibernation isn't always sleeping it's about being cozy cozy in the bed an excuse to stay in the bed that's not watching tv because of my very strict rules about tv in the bedroom no, so this you know a lot has been written I think about the kind of uh Danish idea of huga huga um, if you know how to say it, please feel free to Instagram us or tweet us. But which basically is, as far as I can tell, many throw pillows, many duvets and throws and candlelight and natural it's wood. soft abundance. Soft abundance. I like that. It's nice. Everything that mm. you are interacting with, from the light, the textures, is just soft and gentle. gentle. And what did you just say? Soft furnishings lull you into sleep that's all it's doing everything is lulling you towards relaxation so i've been thinking about this in the context of the outdoors and when we are sort of outside and then needing to find shelter and needing to find kind of places to take respite from the weather i was recently at uh, st pancras square pancras square um near king's cross and looking at this new development which has just gone up in the last few years and what's interesting is that they've cut the 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 argent who are the master planners and the master developers of the of the site um in partnership very closely with camden council they've sold off different elements of the site to different companies who then developed it up using many Which kind of I world-renowned architects. It gives architects. it much more of a, a village feel. Yep, and yeah. it and it, it doesn't all feel like it happened in the same moment yep. because it's got a different kind of um, aesthetic. But what's been interesting is looking at how some of them have decided to cheat away space from their ground floor. 
So they're losing floor space from okay. their So you retail. have a kind of overhanging first floor, yeah. but actually it gives you... So it gives you a different kind mm. of space underneath that overhang. So in the same way that in Bologna, uh, it's quite famous for their arcades in terms of um, these, these huge overhangs of the first floor um, down to the ground, and you can walk through them. So if it's not too hot or if it's too cold or it's too rainy... You've got this kind of Brandes, very protected area. Basically. Like exactly, yeah. like a veranda. And what's interesting is that we talk a lot in the UK about how we can't have a cafe culture here because it's too wet and drizzly. But of course, in Scandinavian countries, no they have a massive culture of this. Even before outdoor heaters, you know, you just, they gave you a blanket. But this is, it, it, you, you talk about Scandinavian, you're absolutely right, which is where your here comes from. In the Alps, when mm. I ski... Yes, you're wearing attire, you're dressed for the outdoors, but you're doing exercise the moment you stop, you mm. get cold. Yet still you have the throes, the warmth. Yeah. The, I mean, don't get me wrong, you might be drinking warmer drinks. You're not drinking ice-cold cocktails sitting no. in the ice cold. No. But this is fascinating. So you think that the design of this location has actually taken into consideration all year round use absolutely and i think that that's something that we're seeing more and more of in in kind of urban design terms and it keeps people using the public spaces the public realm yes exactly and it keeps people and and people are attracted to people so the more so if you've got that then the actual kind of central public spaces are more well used because you've got people sitting in the chairs under the overhang mm. and i don't know i'm really interested in the kind of relationship between the indoors and the outdoors, particularly when it's cold, because nothing feels as good as going inside when you have been really, really cold outside. And I'm, I'm a big, big fan of the kind of like outdoors in the winter. So the winter beach, the winter romp, dog walk, that kind of thing. We say dog walk because I'm afraid right in the background right now, my dog is, uh, having a lovely little drink of water. so oh, She's the best dog. Very, very real situation. But you, I couldn't agree with you more. There is this, the thing that's best about the cold is being able to come back inside or being able to come back in and feel the warmth mm. of the hibernation. The, the wraparound, yeah. the, that impact, and, and all the layers that you wrap up in, then be able to kind of take, slowly unwrap yourself. Mm. And is that what hibernation actually is? Hibernation is a sense of you're, you've come in from being outside, you're in this warm, safe, soft space, but it doesn't have to be inside. Yeah. No, that's nice. Yeah, and, and I also think hibernation is this kind of... We talked about doing, a, doing, doing something on hibernation, and I just sort of think... It's that kind of just safety and security and cocooning yourself yes. into something. Thank you. You've hit the nail on the head there because actually it's not about comfort. I think it's about safety. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that um, kind of going on to our designing together for the month, um, one of the things that's really interesting to me about London in particular is that there are all of these sort of semi-public private spaces. So whether that's a, a private members club um, so the, yes. the old school gentlemen's clubs, like... Yeah, um, the East India, Annabelle's, etc. Well, et Annabelle's, but... Annabelle's is uh, not, so, not, not so old. Not quite old school, but, um, but like the Carlton. Yes. Or whatever. And, and, and this idea that, 
you know, London is a, London is a city of clubs. Um, and so for our Designing Together, Abby, you are a member of the Royal Academy. I or am. a friend. I'm a friend. You're a friend. I'm a friend. Um, and the Royal Academy... What made you decide to become a friend? Well, of all the places that I generally went, so you've got National Portrait, Royal Academy, Tate, mm-hmm. um, Britain and Modern. I think the, the, the RA... Tate family. Yes, exactly. The RA was the one that probably I went to the most... And I was genuinely intrigued. There are elements of the Tate that you can go to... Oh, the Tate, sorry. Elements of the RA that you can go to without being a member. So after, I think, about 4.30 on a weekday, mm. you're able to access uh, the Keeper's Cottage, which is where they have a cafe, restaurant, um, and downstairs the bar, which we'll talk about in a minute, a little bit, long, uh, a little bit more. Um, but I, I wanted a way of genuinely giving a little bit back in terms of money Mm. um having somewhere that i can go to that's i know i'm gonna love and of course the benefit of being able to get into their exhibitions which there's never been an exhibition there that i haven't thought i would do that um so actually it was a really easy decision for me equally i have got friends who are members of the tate members of the national portrait gallery and i go and meet them and i often go and see an exhibition and then go to the bar and it's lovely, but somehow I feel like a tourist, whereas at the RA I feel like I'm home. That's really interesting. So I am. So I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, mm. which has uh, the house on John Adams Street, and we we can go there uh, uh, soon. Um, and and I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. I, and 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 I have been for for quite a few years now, and I and I enjoy their kind of twenty first century enlightenment and their journal and the events that they put on, they don't do exhibitions, but the events that they put on, the, the talks and the, and the lectures and stuff. And, and it's interesting because you can, and I used to work there very briefly um, about 10 years ago. Um, and what's interesting is you can go there and it's the house. Mm. And when you talk to um, the chief exec, uh, Matthew will often say, like if you're, if you're in an event with him, he'll say, Hello, I'm Matthew Taylor. Welcome to my house. <laughs> but there is this kind of thing about feeling at yes. home in these clubs, in these places. And I've been to a number of the private members clubs. So like the Carlton, the East India, yes. um, so the Caledonian. Well, but, and then Soho House. The Gra- modern so, ones. So yeah, so the modern ones, you know, you've got Groucho, Soho, Dean, um, St. Barnabas. Um, and, and those all have a slightly different feel. They're catering to a different... Well, it used to be that you had your club in town, yeah. which was effect- effectively it's your like rooms. a cheap hotel. It was a cheap hotel. And they still are. That's the other thing. The big secret is, I would never be a member of a private members club in London that had rooms if I lived in London. Well, we've talked about before. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is cheaper to be a member of these clubs in a non-London and oh, yet, if you're if you have an overseas residence for mm. any reason, so you, before on the podcast we've talked about me going to um six seven Pall Mall, mm. that is private members club. It doesn't have rooms, but my girlfriend who I often go with, she's an overseas member. She lives in France yeah. and Russia. She's a member of the RAC, and oh. her membership there because she's foreign she? in respect of uh her home address, she gets to be a foreign member and pay. Almost nothing. Well, not and all, then no, for, no. for how much she's staying. For how much Sorry, she's paying compared to, stay, to the in town yes. price, almost nothing. To stay in 
I don't even know if there is a hotel on Pall Mall, but to stay in St James's, yeah, nothing. And the R, I mean, the RSC is beautiful. I mean, I've been there a few times. I didn't know they allowed women to be full members, but anyway, yes, they do now. She is. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> so, so I think the point about the reason why I wanted to talk about clubs uh, during the hibernation thing is that this is kind of hibernating away from your own home. Mm. Places that you can find to get respite. Going back almost to that thing that I was talking about at the very beginning with the this is your brain in the city. Where are the places that you can go to feel at home and to feel comfortable and to come back into yourself in order that you can go back and re-experience the city. And isn't that interesting? Because in our designing together, we went to the RA because of the fact that I'm a friend and yeah. because it's my, it has become a little bit of a haunt for me. Yeah. I feel, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person, I love going to a restaurant on my own. Because yeah. I genuinely love food. I have no issue about sitting there on my own. I don't need a book. I don't need my phone. I can just sit there and people watch and eat great food. Nevertheless... Going to bars, going for a drink, going for a coffee somewhere. I do like to have somewhere I'm a little bit more, feels like my home. And the RA became that for me. Not only could I go and see an amazing exhibition, which would blow my mind and inspire me and encourage all kinds of creativity. But actually I went to somewhere where I'm in town and I can go and sit. I just want to sit down for 10 minutes and I don't want to have to think about it. I sometimes want to sit down for two hours Mm. and not want to think about it. And in their kind of cafe culture, I'm not the kind of person who can go to Starbucks and milk one coffee and make it last for two hours. Yeah. I want to be somewhere where if I need to pop to the loo, I can just say to the bar staff, oh, just watch my stuff. Yeah. That if I want to have a coffee, then a coffee, then a tea, then a glass of wine. And the RA works winter, summer. The space we're in today, which is very much subterranean. It is. I mean, literally, naturally. It does have this mm, little tropical courtyard. And in the summer, it is a little bit of paradise. It's quiet. It's away from it. There's no traffic noise. You wouldn't know you're just off Piccadilly. My criticism, if Mm. I'm allowed to have some... The RA is absolutely fantastic for its um, uh, um, promoting artists. And like lots of cafes, we spoke about it this evening when we went, um, like lots and lots of cafes, the art that's on the wall is available. Everything is for sale. Everything is for sale. Um, but I would like to see more, especially with the outside space. I would love to see if there was more in the way of surface patterns design in terms of textiles, cushions or throws. Mm. Again, thinking yep. about that, from their phenomenal RA creators. And I don't think there's enough of that that goes on. There's too much reliance on just, here's a print, here's a photo, here's a sculpture so, that's for sale. If I had a criticism of the bar, I feel like it could have been anywhere. Yes, there's nothing that tells you it's the RA when you're sitting in Yeah, it. so what is the brand of the RA? What are they trying to... So I feel like I've recently been spending... a frightening amount of time at the RA and I'm not even a friend more of an acquaintance actually because they are absolutely in love with you (laughs) truly I'm a friend and they don't love me that much so you've done a podcast I've done a podcast I've done an essay I went to see and this is all off the back of an incredible friend of mine um Indy Johar who I've known for many years who uh he and Dark Matter Labs and I think I've spoken about this before but they curated a, a small exhibition in the architecture um studio um, called We Are They, which is basically looking at 
the confluence of digital and kind of next stage humanity. Oh, big, big concepts. Anyway. But so, an amazing, an amazing, amazing essay. Good. Which is available thank, online. Thank you. Uh, we, we will obviously link to that in the show notes. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with the RA. I've spent some time in the various dining rooms. I've spent some time in the lecture theater, which is amazing. The lecture theater is like, Beautiful. It, um, on the architecture side, it's like a, it's, it's like one of the old, um, uh, surgery theaters. Oh yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah. It's like one of the old surgery theaters. The really, st- incredibly, raped, steep really sides. steeply raked, yeah. um, theater. It's just incredible. Um, and, it, and it's been a kind of really interesting experience because I've been sort of exploring the RA from a slightly different angle because I've been to the exhibition, I've been to the summer exhibition. I love the summer exhibition. Um, I've been to a few of their other exhibitions. I should probably just become a friend. But my point is that I went into the bar tonight and this is the first time I was in the bar and I thought, well, oh. Yes. Oh, right. So, and, and the... The banquettes were comfortable. The chairs were comfortable. Nice. The bar was lovely. The wait staff was fantastic. Ran into a friend of mine who works at the Tate randomly. Brilliantly. And actually, do you know what? I was at the when I was at the RA recording the podcast the other week. I ran into somebody who I used to work with at the RSA. Interestingly, ten years ago, I haven't seen her in ten years. And that and is that's what, a club what does. and that's what, a, that's club what does. a club does. That is what a club does, and it, that's the, my point about this home away from home. This idea that you've got this place where, like Cheers, sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. Bum 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 bum. So Abby, what are you gonna do next month? It is January. So Will you be buying products that. Will un- change your life. Unnecessary things that I didn't need, but they're going to change my life. No, I'm going to take my own advice on good design, bad design. In actual fact, I have been thinking about um, my design New Year's resolutions. Okay. And for me, I rather than removing things I shouldn't, I'm thinking about things I should do. Mm. And the things I should do is challenge my preconceptions. I am a very ostentatious person. I know I am. I don't hide it. Um, recently, I was in Glen Eagles, and I was in paradise. Late Edwardian decadence mm. in terms of timber panelling, marble flooring, cornicing, chandeliers, high ceilings. Quite a lot like your flat. Quite a lot like my flat. Slightly smaller. Mm. Glen Eagles rather than my flat, obviously. Um and actually, I, I shy away from a lot of the later brutalist and mid-century modern and even truly contemporary architecture because I've decided in advance I'm not going to like it. Yeah. I like details. I like finishes that are highly ornate. Ipso facto, I'm not going to like it. Yeah. And I am going to, in 2019, challenge my own preconceptions about that. And I will report back, tell you how I get on. Excellent. What about you? What are you going to do? What's your next month I? Ooh, excellent question. So, um, okay, bit of a weird one from a design perspective. Next month, I am starting burlesque classes. You see, I don't think that's weird from a design perspective. <laughs> I think burlesque is an entire genre. Well, it is. So I'm interested in the kind of aesthetic of it, obviously. I'm also really interested in doing something that is wholly for myself. Now, this 
as a mother, I completely applaud. I think you need to re-grab something that gives you... And there's something about... a sense of yeah. self and... Something about locating that back into my body. I think the thing that is interesting is that I've always been kind of obsessed with 40s and 50s glamour, as, yes. as a lot of people have, I think. Um, but I remember even being a sort of 13, 14-year-old, and I used to take time off school to uh, record the old movies that they would show in the middle of the day and I would basically plan my sickies from school based on what they were going to be showing. Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, things like Gentlemen Before Blondes or going even further back, so abs- absolute obsession with Carol Lombard, absolute obsession with um, the Fred and Ginger movies of the 1930s. Um, and so I really liked the idea of doing burlesque because it's comedy it's funny it's cheeky but it's also sexy and it's dance so it's you know at least kind of athletic and I wonder so keeping on the movie vein yeah so I'm not so 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 Moulin Rouge for example and I think burlesque that's where my mind goes to uh-huh is it more Dita Von much so Dita Von is obviously contemporary burlesque um I think Moulin Rouge is playing with burlesque, but is obviously referencing back to an earlier period yes. of music hall. Um, one of the, so one of the most famous burlesque artists of all time is Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, you, are, you even I've heard of. Yeah, so Gypsy Rose Lee uh, is the 1940s, 30s, 40s. So she basically grew up with this terrible stage mother um, who drove her and her sister to be child performers and they of vaudeville. So they're going through all this vaudeville stuff. I feel like um, it's like Kardashians, but from the... Kind of, yeah. And they wind up in this burlesque house. Um, her sister leaves. This is... I'm getting all of this from the musical Gypsy, which I was in as a high school student. Hey, I'm still... I'm loving the facts. Play, play, playing Gypsy Rosalie. Of course. Of course I was. Of course, you of course I was. Would you, who isn't the star of the show? The star of the show is Mama Rose, right? Okay. The star of the show is, show is the mother. Anyway. Um, so... So this whole idea of burlesque being, it's stripping, but it's not. It's stripping with a sense of humour. Um, well, see, see, it feels like there's a lot of feminine empowerment. Yeah. And, and, I, th- and I don't know how much of that is just sort of a, rec- a reclamation of um, burlesque. Yeah, it's difficult to say, isn't it's it? Just, because clearly yeah. it was a, so it, so it def- was a transaction. So it definitely is now. So yes. it definitely is now. So definitely now, if you're going to go for like feminist stripping... Feminist nudity is burlesque. Burlesque, exactly so. Right. Um, I have been assured by the course organisers there is no nudity involved in the class that I'm taking. Is that because you're going to wear nipple tassels? I have absolutely no idea what to expect. Abby's earrings are a lot like nipple tassels. I'm feeling a Christmas gift coming <laughs> on. So on that bombshell. Um, so yeah, so next month I am going to be starting to explore the burlesque aesthetic. I absolutely Which love is that. a bit more, which interestingly, so you're going to explore the minimalism and I'm going to explore the maximalism. We're swapping lives. Hmm. But I'll also be wearing my nipple tassels. Clear. Which is under my clothes. Whereas Clear. yours will be out a swinging. <laughs> Um, please, dear listeners, do um, tweet us and follow us on Instagram and tell us what your New Year's design, design resolutions, resolutions are. Um, also, we do appreciate if you're able to um, rate and review us on iTunes. Um, follow us, look at EDD, um, sorry, Everyday Design 
on iTunes. Scroll down, you'll see the ability to five star rate us. No pressure. Um, and we look forward to speaking to you next month on Everyday Design. Everyday Design. Thank you.